The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Brian Sullivan, and you're listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. Our show airs live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. It is 5 a.m. on Wall Street, and here is your top five at five on this Friday. Futures pointing to more gains for an already red-hot stock market. New highs could be hit again today. President Trump finally conceding the election and condemning the rioters who stormed Capitol Hill. But there are still growing calls for his removal or impeachment. It is Jobs Day. Today's report can tell us a lot more about the impact of COVID and lockdowns on the economy, whether a bigger stimulus plan may be on the way. Hyundai confirming it is in talks with Apple on driving a self-driving car, but then walking that statement back will bring you the latest. And the electric vehicle craze continues. Chinese internet search firm Baidu reportedly thinking about creating its own electric car. Hey, Let's all build one on this Friday, January 8th, and this is Worldwide Exchange. Oh, good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, and welcome from wherever in the world that you may be watching. I am Brian Sullivan. Thanks for joining us here on this Friday. And here's how things look after another eight-day work week here in the United States. Futures, they are higher. Not a lot, but they are up nonetheless. And remember that any gains on most of the major averages will bring new record highs. When you're at a record and you go up, that's a new record, of course, It has been a terrible week for America on so many levels. The D.C. riots, COVID cases, hospitalizations spiking. But through all that, it has still been a very good week for stocks because as odd as it may seem, like we talked about yesterday and like we've talked about in the past, the markets look forward and they see better days ahead in many ways and for many reasons. Thursday was another new record for the S&P 500, heading for its third straight higher week in the past four. Look at that change. The small caps up 6% this week. That's a return to America reflation trade. Mid caps doing well as well. Well, one big theme, the consumer, which many believe could take off in the second half of the year. Of course, one of my 2020 predictions was that we would see this roaring 21s and 22s. It'll take a while to get there, but we will get there. The XLY, Consumer Discretionary ETF, rising nearly 2% yesterday. That's a big move for such a big ETF. And one thing that you must begin to watch, if you are not already, I know it's a little bit wonky and maybe even a little boring, is bond yields and corporate credit spreads. The 10-year yield is above 1%. In fact, 1.07%. That's a pretty big move in a short period of time. And every tick higher seems to be very good for banks and bank stocks, which are also catching a lot of buyer interest lately. Watch bond yields it may tighten corporate credit spreads. All right, around the world, Asia closing mostly lower with the Nikkei in Japan, though, did jump more than 2%. Shanghai was down, and we are currently also mixed in Europe. You've got Germany up and the U.K. down. Uh, the U- I stand corrected. The U.K. is up 0.02%. All right, we will get more and back to the markets, of course, in a minute. But right now, we have to get to the very latest on what we know about that terrible Wednesday in Washington. President Trump finally conceding the election and saying his focus now is on ensuring a smooth, orderly 
and seamless transition of power. But there are still growing calls for action against the president and the potential use of the 25th Amendment to remove him. NBC's Tracy Potts joining us now with more. Good morning, Tracy. Brian, good morning. Sources are telling NBC there have been informal talks among staff about using the 25th Amendment uh, to remove the president and, of course, growing calls for that. Uh, more than 200 members of Congress, one Republican, the rest Democrats so far, uh, and others who say the president should either uh, be removed with the 25th Amendment or Congress should impeach him. Now, the president, in a new video, taking a different tone in light of all of these calls, for his removal, he has for the first time acknowledged that Joe Biden won the election and will be inaugurated on January 20th. He says there will be a new administration as of that date. But he also takes a very different tone toward the rioters uh, who invaded the Capitol on Wednesday. Initially, uh, the president said things like, we love you, we understand how you're feeling, calm down and go home. Now he's saying that people who broke the law will have to pay, uh, and that he was appalled by what he saw. A very different message than just 24 hours earlier. We're also starting to see several members of his administration leave uh, in several different departments, in the White House, two of his cabinet secretaries, Elaine Child, the transportation secretary, and Betsy DeVos uh, in the education department, both have announced that they're leaving. And some of these folks specifically have said it's because of what they believe to be the president's role in inciting that riot. Tracy Potts in Washington. Tracy, it's been a long week. Best to you and yours. We'll see you next week. Thank you, Tracy. Well, despite what happened in Washington, stock markets just continue to power higher. And like we've said, it's because of a lot of different things all coming together at the same time. The thoughts of bigger stimulus, accommodative central banks around the world, the eventual end of the pandemic, and it is coming. And probably, most of all, trillions of dollars just sitting around the world in banks or money market funds and very little stock to buy with it. Remember, between mergers and buybacks, the amount of available stock in the U.S. stock market is down a lot from even a decade ago. As one of Jim Cramer's themes on Mad Money last night, it's like if 20 people wanted to buy five homes in a certain town and even eight decided to fight for those five, prices are going to go up. And that's exactly what happened in the last, really, last couple of months of the market. Let's bring in now Seema Shah, Chief Strategist at Principal Global Investors. Seema, it is uh, great to see you again, I guess, and great to have you back on in these crazy times that we are in. And uh, something about this market, I want to read you. I'm looking down because I, I tweeted this out yesterday and just how things have gotten in the market. And I'm not making a value judgment on it. Okay, are you ready, Seema? Yesterday, Tesla added $60 billion in market value. The value of General Motors yesterday, plug power, red hot hydrogen stock up 35%, oil up, Bitcoin 40,000, solar power ETF up 6%, Goldman Sachs, the bank stocks soaring as well. Everything is up. Are you in any way getting nervous? Well, it's, it's great to see at the beginning of this year as well. Look, I think there is, there's a lot to be said for why we're seeing such positive moves across the board. Um, as you pointed out, you know, markets are looking beyond the winter wave of coronavirus. They're looking to the point where the vaccine is mass distributed and we can see an end to normalization. They're thinking about future fiscal stimulus. They're thinking about central banks staying on hold and continuing to provide unlimited liquidity through all of 2021. 
But of course, as you said, look, valuations are stretched. When you see these kind of significant moves, as you just named, um, of course, there will be concerns starting to grow that things are looking a little bit too stretched. But I think, look, we have to remember the fundamentals are very, very strong. But stimulus, we've seen how strong that can be um, in pushing capital markets forward. So I think we have to think about that. But at the same time, there will be wobbles ahead. The road ahead is not going to be very smooth. And investors should be prepared for that volatility as the months go ahead. Because it does seem like nothing is going to stop this market. I mean, and we're seeing these gains. And listen, they're very good for our investors. Retirement plans, 401ks, five college savings plans in the United States. This is good news. But at the same time, the idea, the concept that stocks only go one way, and that is up, I guess can be a dangerous one, particularly for those newer investors that are out there. I mean, if you Google trends, things like how to buy Bitcoin and how to buy stocks and things like that, they're soaring. A lot of new people are coming into this market, which is, I'm not going to say too hot. It's not my job to say that. But when you have stocks gaining $60 billion in market value in a day, Seema, you have to at least sit up and take a little notice. No, absolutely. And, you know, I, I think you're right in saying we can't, we can't assume that there are no risks out there. Our fundamentals are strong for this year, and we do believe that 2021 is going to be a generally good year for risk assets. But at the same time, by the end of 2021 and into 2022, some of those concerns start to bubble to the surface, the main ones being you know, the huge increase in debt, both from governments and corporates over the last year. That has to be paid back at some point. We're thinking about rising inflation pressures. We do expect inflation to pick up this year, not to a point which will prompt a U-turn by central banks, but at least to a point which causes market um, participants to sit up and, and think for a moment, you know, how long can this go on for? So you're absolutely right. There are risks ahead and investors do need to be cognizant um, that it's not always up. That direction can move the other way. Well, I think you brought up an incredibly important point, Seaman, that is all that debt, that basically free money, negative interest rates with inflation in many cases that has been issued. And that's the reason at the beginning we highlighted the 10-year bond yields, they're only at 1.07% in America. I, now, I, you work for Principal Global, an insurance company. That Yields, interest rates are everything to you guys. I'm not going to make too much of 1.07%, Seema, but if we see any kind of more meaningful rise in rates, I mean, that is the super tanker that can shift a lot of assets, can it not? It can, I think. But the important point is is almost the speed at which those, those yields are rising. We are expecting that gentle drift upwards, um, certainly with the global growth recovery, we should see that. I think it's it's how quickly do they move up? Um, because if they, you know, if we start to see them shooting up, um, they're hitting, you know, significantly higher levels within a couple of months. That is a concern for equity valuations, right? Um, and it does start to bring up some question marks around the debt levels. You know, how expensive it, it will be for governments to pay it back. Um, if we're seeing a gentle drift higher than, as you said, for financials, it's fantastic news. Uh, the value trade that we've been talking about for 10 years, we've kind of been long, long waiting for that. It is great news for that position. But it's why is it moving higher? And should we be worried that at some point central banks will start to pull back? And that is the risk right now. There's not risk of that. They've made it very clear. And let's hope that it stays for a while. I'm not saying it's good or bad, but for risk assets, to your point, Seema Shaw, it is going to be necessary. Seema, have a good weekend there in the UK. Best to you guys. I know it's really tough for you all right now, so we're thinking about you. We'll see you again soon. And for all that smart analysis, folks, I think, you know, at the top of Mad Money, last night, Jim Cramer hit it best. He talked about an old boss that he had who said, 
Why do stocks go up? Because there's more buyers than sellers. And that's kind of the way things are right now. All right, we come back. Speaking of, would you buy an electric Hyundai Apple mobile? Well, shares of Hyundai Motor soaring in Asia today. It says it is in talks with Apple to possibly develop a new car. We'll get more on that. You got futures up 104 right now. It is Jobs Friday as well. Lots to do. We're back after this. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. All right, welcome back to Worldwide Exchange, everybody. Well, there are certainly a number of big money corporate stories that are out there as well this morning. Let's get a few of those. And for that, we bring back in Rahel Solomon. Good morning, Rahel. Hello. Good morning, Brian. So, yes, let's start with Hyundai. You mentioned this before the break. So Hyundai confirming that it is and talks with Apple, perhaps, to work on the production of developing electric cars, perhaps, and batteries Shares of the automaker, as you mentioned before the break, are surging on that news. Uh, So the company did later issue another statement, Brian, that actually avoided mentioning Apple by name and instead referred to what it called, quote, diverse companies that have talked with Hyundai about developing autonomous vehicles. So perhaps continue to watch that space. Uh, Speaking of EVs, sources tell CNBC that Chinese search giant Baidu will create a standalone electric vehicle company. It will be the majority shareholder while Chinese automaker Geely will take a minority stake. And then staying in Asia now, shares of Chinese telecom giants China Mobile and China Unicom and China Telecom all fell today. So this is after index providers MSCI and FTSE Russell announced that they will delist the firm's Hong Kong-listed securities from some of their indexes. And Brian, this all comes after the NYSE said that it would delist the stocks to comply with an executive order signed by President Trump last year seeking to prevent U.S. investors from owning some China-based companies. Brian, would you buy an EV car from Apple? That is the question. Yeah, I mean, I have to see it first. I mean, still, I think car looks matter. I mean, as cool as the tech is, right? Well, it still has to look good, I think. And so I have to wait. I mean, if it's, but Apple tends to make things look pretty good. So we'll see. So style and substance. All right, we'll we'll see you. I agree. Yeah, we we will see you in a bit. Rahel, thank you very much. All right, yeah, that's right. Got to see what it looks like first. All right, coming up. As Washington, D.C. remains on edge after Wednesday's riots at the Capitol, local businesses already suffering from lockdowns face yet another hit. A tense time heading up to the inauguration. We are always thinking about small business here on CNBC. And Chef Amy Brandwine, owner of Centralina and Piccolina, is here. Talk about where they stand now. You can't do it. I can't stay. It's a, it's a nothing thing. It doesn't affect the outcome. It doesn't affect the transition. But it's it's what I've got, right? And it's a position I really enjoy doing. But you can't do it. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised to see more of my uh, my friends 
um, resign over the course of the next uh, 24 to 48 hours. We don't have to uh, worry, I think, about national security. I think the national security apparatus will work well. But I do think we should take a longer term perspective on how to make certain that we once again become a beacon for democracy around the world and not a laughingstock for democracy around the world. And that's what we've become today. What happened yesterday is a disgrace. And I, as an American, I'm embarrassed. You know, I didn't vote for Trump in 16. I voted for him in this past election, November. Today, I'm, I'm sorry I did that. There's a certain monicum of uh, adult leadership necessary to run a significant organization of any kind, whether it's a university, uh, a newspaper, a church, a synagogue, a mosque. Uh, this, this is below that line, and, and we shouldn't tolerate it. Well, that was just some of the sound and voices that you heard on CNBC yesterday. Politicians, business leaders, and investors reacting to the riot on Capitol Hill. But this morning, I want to talk to you about another part of the story. The pain, the violence is inflicting on local businesses. After already facing a ban on indoor dining, D.C. restaurants now have to grapple with more unrest flooding the city. A new 6 p.m. curfew, a lot of questions. Let's get some answers. For more on how restaurants are finding ways to survive through all this chaos, we are joined now by Amy Brandwine, chef and owner of Centralina and Piccolina in downtown D.C. Uh, chef Brandwine, it's, it's good to have you on. I certainly wish it was under better circumstances. How much guidance are you getting from the city about the state of the curfew and your ability to do business right now? Um, well, we had a curfew uh, on uh it was, I believe it was yesterday and Wednesday, it's been lifted. So there's no curfew in place right now. But other than that, um, we are, the city's in a state of emergency and, um, you know, businesses are, you know. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn on what you want, like trying out that new workout class, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like a foam roller for your sore muscles. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash active cash able to be open. Um, the question is how much business we're going to have. And this is different than the last time. And you've seen protests and you've seen unrest. And I know there's been parking that has been cordoned off and streets that have been cordoned off. Uh, what are you expecting? Are you telling employees to, to come to work tonight for a robust carryout business or are you telling them to stay home? Um, well, we did um, have the employees stay home for the last two days. We're closed. We've been closed for two and a half days um, and we're reopening for uh, service tonight. 
Um, and, you know, we first obviously want to make sure that the employees are in a safe environment. Um, and quite frankly, that it takes a little bit of, uh, you know, due diligence to, to make sure that you feel comfortable bringing people back to work. Um, but in terms of what we expect tonight, um, I expect it to be quiet. Um, and, uh, you know, we have a lot of loyal customers. I expect to see some of them. But, um, you know, the city is kind of in lockdown right now. So transportation is very difficult. And, um, you know, I think there's just a I mean, we've never been through anything like this. So um, I think people are just on edge. Well, it's a it's a double whammy. And certainly you're already facing the COVID and the pandemic and the lockdowns there. Your carryout business, luckily, Centralina's got a market, which makes it a bit easier. People come in for groceries and the staples in that center city neighborhood. But when you now you've got this on top of that and probably the next five or 10 years, Amy, in the courts is going to be defined by lawsuits over business interruption insurance. That's going to be the insurance fight to come. This, I think, is a different kind of potential insurance. Do you expect that you will get paid by insurers for lost revenue, not because of COVID and pandemics, but because of violence? Um, well, I mean, we were closed for 10 days uh, during the protests in the summer. Um, the complex where I was was, uh, was uh, completely vandalized. Um, but, you know, uh, insurance doesn't really kick in until uh, I think it's three days of civil unrest. So, um, I mean, it's a, it's a huge predicament here in terms of, um, you know, how businesses can recover income from, um, you know, situations like this where it's a state of emergency. Um, you know, insurance right now won't pay out for mm -hmm. one day, two days, three days. And right now I've had 10 days and then uh, we've had several days of, of lost revenue, probably about two weeks total at this point. So um, to me, it's a real issue. Um, it's very distressing. Yeah. Well, it's got to be. I don't know. You, you spend years building these businesses and brands up. But well, let's, let's flip it. Later on in the program, we're going to talk about the vaccination rollouts with the doctor as well. Amy, obviously, many food workers, whether it's in a, in a plant or whether it's in a butcher shop, food workers are in many ways deemed essential. Are you getting any guidance from Washington, D.C. on the potential timeline of vaccinations for you and your staff as well? Because ultimately we will get out of this. We're just all trying to figure out when. <laughs> yes. Um, you know, we do have we do have guidance slowly coming out that suggests that in the course of the next couple of months, essential workers, uh, restaurant workers, um, um, will be uh, kind of in the first rollout. Um, however, we don't have any details of when that might be. So um, I, my, my expectation is that we're looking at probably uh, late summer before things start to become a little bit more normalized. Well, let's hope so. And listen, I got to say, Amy, uh, there's nothing quite like Washington, D.C., sitting outside on a nice spring day heading into the summertime. And let's hope by then we're able to do it. Centralina, Piccolina, I look forward to coming down and having an adult beverage or six. Amy, thank you very much for joining us. Not at the same time, folks. Not at the same time. All right, coming up, this morning's big market stories, including Bitcoin's big pop and then big drop. And now big pop again in the last 24 hours, up 735 to 39,656. The Everything Rally rolls on, and so do we, right after this. Mm. 
All right, welcome back and good Friday morning. It is just about 5.30 Eastern time here on this Friday. Welcome or welcome back. Here's how your money and markets look right now as we are about halfway through that 5 a.m. hour in stock futures. They are on the rise again, folks. This everything rally that we have talked about, stocks, bonds, Bitcoin, housing, commodities, all continuing to rise and all at the same time. It looks like we're going to get that again today, although it is Jobs Day Friday, so things certainly could turn around based on how that number comes out at 8.30, although the payroll number hasn't been moving markets a whole lot lately, in part, of course, because of pandemics and lockdowns. Treasury yields, by the way, they have been on the move, and while they are still historically very low at just 1.07%, remember, they were at 0.7.8%, basically 70, 80 cents earlier, and, and, and now they've moved up to 1.08%, which I know is still low, but that's a big move in a short period of time for bond yields. It all means that credit spreads might tighten. The whole thing is too wonky and, frankly, too boring to get into at 5.30 in the morning on a Friday. But watch yields, watch credit spreads, watch the bank stocks, Goldman, JPM, and everything else. They've been doing very well on that tick higher in rates. And we were, we were going to try to write in some sort of script around Bitcoin. I think our team, all the hardworking folks at Worldwide Exchange, they just realized don't write anything about Bitcoin because in 10 seconds, it can be something else. Bitcoin was up above 40,000 yesterday. Then it was down fairly sizably when we launched the show. Bitcoin is actually now higher back again. So up above 40, then down a bunch, and now back up a bunch. And we showed you a few minutes ago, it was up, what, 700? Now it's up just 500 each trade. Remember, there's not that many Bitcoin and a lot of people pushing around, not a lot of assets, can move that market, whatever it is, a crypto or a stock. All right, now to some of this morning's other big money corporate stories. Let us head back now to Rahel Solomon for those. Rahel. Hi again, Brian. Yes, so Boeing will pay $2.5 billion to settle a criminal probe by the Justice Department over the 737 MAX. So the government had accused the aerospace giant of concealing information about the airplane that, of course, was involved in those two deadly crashes. Uh, SolarWinds has hired former Trump cybersecurity chief Chris Krebs as an independent consultant. So the tech company found itself in the middle of a major scandal after its own software was used by hackers to spy on governments and businesses. Krebs was fired by President Trump meantime in November. That's after he asserted that the 2020 election was secure and was not rigged. And take a look at shares of Samsung overnight. They're rising. This, as the company says, that fourth quarter operating profit rose 26 percent in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic. And that, of course, Brian, comes as remote working and TV consumption has really driven demand for chip shipments and display sales. Brian? Like what all of us are doing, Rahel, you're there, I'm here. It takes a lot of computing power to make this happen. Yes, it does. The magic of television right, Rahel, and chips. we'll see it a bit. Yeah, exactly. TV and chips of the other kind. Rahel, thank you very much. By the way, dill pickle, nothing better. All right, now to Washington and the latest on what we know about that terrible Wednesday on Capitol Hill. President Trump finally conceding the election. And saying in a video statement last night that his focus is now on, quote, ensuring a smooth, orderly and seamless transition of power. But despite that, there are still growing calls for action against the president and the potential invocation of the 25th Amendment to remove him. Although Vice President Pence says that's not going to happen. Eamon Javers joining us now with the latest. And Eamon, you've got Vice President Pence saying it's not going to happen. You've got others in Congress suggesting it still should. Others yet saying it's only 12 or 13 days. 
let's just let him fade away. Don't make things worse. Where does this sort of balance of power around this dialogue stand right now? Look, Brian, you're seeing growing calls for the president's resignation. You're seeing calls for impeachment. You're seeing calls for the 25th Amendment. I think all of that for now, for the moment, is unlikely, but it is a fluid situation. The 25th Amendment uh, is a process that requires a large number of Trump cabinet secretaries to buy in. Uh, I'm not sure we're there yet in terms of the buy-in level among uh, the, the Trump officials. Uh, the impeachment process is a long one that could take longer uh, than the 12 days remaining in the president's term in office. So uh, at this point, you can consider those both unlikely. The Wall Street Journal editorial page called for the president to simply resign yesterday, saying that would be the best course of action for the country and for President Trump. Uh, that seems unlikely, too. Uh, remember, the president was out on the National Mall on Wednesday saying he would never concede, never back down, rallying that group of supporters that then went and trashed the U.S. Capitol. Uh, that's not a, the mindset of a person uh, who would necessarily consider resignation. That said, the president did release this two and a half minute video last night, uh, more than 24 hours after the riots, in which uh, he, for the first time, conceded defeat uh, and pledged for a smooth trans transition of power, as you say. And he spoke directly uh, to some of those people who've been involved in the mayhem. Here's what he said. To those who engaged in the acts of violence and destruction, you do not represent our country. And to those who broke the law, you will pay. We have just been through an intense election, and emotions are high. But now tempers must be cooled and calm restored. Meanwhile, the resignations continued among the Trump inner circle. We have two cabinet secretaries now uh, who have resigned from office. Elaine Chao, the Secretary of Transportation, and Betsy DeVos, the Secretary of Education, both cited the riots and the president's uh, behavior around them as reasons for their resignations in protest. We had the deputy national security advisor uh, resign, and along with a host of aides inside the West Wing, the first lady's chief of staff has resigned. All of that lending uh, the final days of the Trump administration an air of near total collapse, Brian. Uh, that coming <clears throat> on the on the eve of news that we got last night from the U.S. Capitol Police that one police officer has died as a result of the conflict. They say that the police officer was physically engaged uh, with the protesters at the Capitol. He returned to headquarters, uh, collapsed there, uh, and then died last night. Tragically, uh, the Capitol Police issuing that statement uh, late in the evening yesterday. That adds uh, another dimension to the tragedy on Capitol Hill, and you can imagine will magnify the feelings of uh, just about everybody in the country as the death toll uh, from those riots now hits five. Brian, back to you. Five lives taken. And, you know, at the end of the day, Eamon, from all the, the video, those people smashing windows and everybody's filming themselves and taking selfies, these are people that now have families that are gone. Daddy or mommy is not coming home on the law enforcement side as well. And, and these are the tragic human stories that need to be talked about a little bit more. But uh, <clears throat> I want to go back to the bigger political picture here. I'm sorry, for, it's been a long week. Um, the bigger political picture. Yeah. You said it, two resignations in the cabinet, DeVos and Chow. Um, obviously, when you transition power, you, you need people in the cabinets to, to help the incoming new cabinets. Although Joe Biden's done it before, so his team may be a little more experienced. But how does the, the, the departure of two cabinet members potentially impact 
any movement on the 25th Amendment side? Is is it sort of also strategic yeah. in leaving a cabinet that there's simply not, there, there may not be the functioning process that would be needed should someone actually be able to get this through? Well, look, personally, uh, it's probably easier for cabinet secretaries to resign than to face up to the decision about whether or not to invoke the 25th Amendment, which is an enormous thing to do. It has never been done in this way uh, in American history. They've invoked different parts of the 25th Amendment when presidents have had surgery, that sort of thing, uh, for temporary purposes. But uh, to remove a a president against his will, uh, saying he's simply unfit for office, has not been done. Uh, it would be an enormous thing. And by resigning, these cabinet secretaries don't have to face that decision. There's a real question around the 25th Amendment, which, remember, was only put in place in the late 1960s in the wake of the assassination of John F. Kennedy. They felt they needed to clarify some of the continuity of government efforts uh, around exactly what happens in emergency situations. Uh, so this is relatively new language, hasn't been tested before. It, the, the Trump administration is stocked with a host of acting secretaries. Remember, he didn't get a lot of these people confirmed by the U.S. Senate and put them in on a temporary basis, uh, partly uh, so that he could yank them out as he wanted to. The president's prone to firing people. Uh, So there are a number of acting secretaries, and it's not clear uh, in the the, uh, Constitution now whether those acting secretaries are required to participate in the 25th Amendment process. You know, if you need mm. all of the cabinet, uh, that's eight votes you need. If you, if you need just uh, the actings, uh, uh, if you can't yeah. use the actings, then you need six votes. And now with these two people resigning, uh, it's unclear at this point how many votes you would need to actually move forward with the 25th Amendment. And they'll have to work all and, that and, out and again, that way. But we're not hearing that it's going that direction, right? Okay, well, maybe we got to go. Maybe a strategic move. If a couple more than resign, then there literally would not be that six quorum to do it, and it just sort of also takes the pressure off those individuals who then who then leave the cabinet. It's going to be a uh, a hell of a few days. Hopefully, it's going to be a very calm few days. And of course, everything thoughts and I hate to say thoughts and prayers, but just deep thoughts to all those families that now don't have somebody coming home. Uh, for dinner, part of that. Eamon Javers, thank you, buddy. Appreciate it, all the hard work you do. All right, joining us now is Fiscal Note Markets Managing Director, Stephanie Miller. Stephanie, uh, welcome and good to chat with you. I want to switch gears on it here. It's been, an, I think, a hard and emotional week for, for, for so many people on so many different levels. Uh, let's just keep it functional, which is this. I tweeted this out yesterday because I was a political science major and a history nerd, and, you know, there's not much else to do when you're sitting at home. So I'm looking through it. I realized... I knew Congress was tight in terms of the the division between Democrats and Republicans. I did not realize until I ran the data all the way back to 1789 or whatever, that this is the most narrowly divided Congress in the entire history of this nation. 50-50 in the Senate, 222 to 211 in the House. We have never had this narrow of a division They're going to have to work with each other, are they not? If you don't have bipartisanship, things aren't going to get done. Absolutely. I mean, when I'm thinking about it as well, it's like what a more fitting, a more fitting representation of our country couldn't be (laughs) happening in Congress. I mean, we are a very divided nation and Congress, you know, as we're as you just articulated, is just split down the middle. And we've long seen, you know, even when one party has a more sizable majority, there's all the intra-party divisions that can occur. 
that make it hard to just assume, you know, just Republicans or just Democrats would be able to move policy. Um, but now that's going to be completely impossible. And so to get anything done, you have to compromise. And so this all feels to me a little bit like a return to where we were in the early 2000s um, after after a 50-50 split in the Senate, not nearly as narrow of a split in the House. Um, there was a real return, a real uh, emergence of power at that time of a moderate, you know, sort of faction of both chambers of Congress. And in the Senate, they were, were called gangs. <laughs> and so you'd get the gang of eight or the gang of six to move policy forward. And, and those were where policymaking happened, not in leadership, as we've seen in recent years. So that that to me seems very yeah, likely to be where we're headed. I mean, I guess when we're old and sitting around, at some point, we're going to realize that this concept of political parties is itself a little odd. I think I call them sort of billion dollar corporations because they're really just it's like, how do you defy a country into, into basically two blocks? I find that to be bizarre. But that that said, nobody cares what I think. Uh, but my point in that, Stephanie, and there is a point, is that you've got the you've got sort of the far left, the centrist left, the centrist right and the far right. And when you look at the division now, I could see a situation where uh, a Joe Manchin from Democrat from the most Republican state in the country, John Tester, Montana, Lisa Murkowski, and maybe even one Mitt Romney, those three or four that could be swayed and maybe won't go with their own parties on certain things, they could become the most powerful people in Washington, literally the decision makers on major legislation. I completely agree. I mean, those are going to be the people that the Biden administration starts negotiating with, not like gets to down the road. And it, I think we're going to see a lot of in this world, who knows what this looks like, but in a normal world, a lot of meetings at the White House between these groups, a lot of engagement between the president, president-elect staff and them, um, because if Biden wants to get any of his agenda done, those are the people that are going to usher it through for him. And that's true on tax and infrastructure. It's true on health care policy and climate change. I mean, everything is going to rest with those people. And that's what our team is doing right now is, you know, taking a step back and saying, OK, if we were in the room with this moderate center, what would policy formation look like? Because they're all these folks are all very interested in being in Washington to get policy done. Uh, and so the idea that they will, you know, allow the perfect to be the enemy of the good is unlikely. So we're expecting a lot more policy making, yeah. but it, for all of it to be much more moderate. And I'm expecting a lot of really new shiny government buildings in Martinsburg, West Virginia. I could just see that because <laughs> there's already a few near where my folks live in Winchester, Virginia, down the highway. Stephanie Miller, fiscal note. Have a great weekend. Thank you very much. Thank Appreciate you. it. All right, coming up, the push to roll out COVID vaccines and how the nation is really doing. There's a lot of talk about it, a lot of criticism. So what are the actual numbers? We'll show you next. Well, today's RBI is on something most of the nation and the world is waiting on, and that is the inoculation of enough of the population that, combined with those who have already been ill and recovered, gets us to that much-needed level of herd immunity where life begins to normalize. So where exactly where do we stand? Well, you've probably heard there's been a lot of criticism about how slow the U.S. vaccination rollout is really going. But if you look at the actual numbers, you know, the facts might be a little bit of a different story globally. According to the Bloomberg Vaccination Tracker, which is updated daily, here's the number of doses per 100 people used in a given population. Israel, by far and away the best, 
17.6 doses used per 100 people, far and away better than the second highest nation, which is United Arab Emirates and Bahrain, which is the third most doses per population. Of course, those nations are small. They've got small geographic footprint as well. As far as larger countries go, and this is the top five, the UK is at number four, 2.2 doses per 100 people as of last night. We are right behind that at 1.9%. That is followed by other Western countries, Canada, by the way, really far behind at just one half of 1%. The point is that while we all want things to go faster, as we tried to show you live on the ground at an actual distribution facility in Louisiana a few weeks ago, it is a tricky process. Many different moving parts, 50 different states, many different agencies within each of those states. But we are getting there. And once the AstraZeneca and J&J medicines are approved, should they be, it should speed up even more. We're going to get there. Random, but important, I guess. Joining us now is Dr. Ofer Levy, director of the Precision Vaccines Program at Boston Children's Hospital. And he joins us once again. Uh, Dr. Levy, it is good to chat with you again. And the point we're just trying to make there is obviously it is frustratingly slow. We've seen the lines, the confusion. It's all done on a state or even local level. You know, it's hard to know who to reach out to. Does my doctor call me? Do I just go wait at a hospital? What is the state of vaccinations up there in Massachusetts? Uh, Thank you for that, Brian. And good morning to you and your viewers. Um, You know, uh, right now, uh, we're seeing a rollout of vaccines and, you know, the, the development of vaccines, you know, within nine months or so of a pandemic is unprecedented. So ne- let's not lose sight of that important milestone. And I think as a country, you know, we get an A plus for innovation. Our system is designed for innovation. You look like a company like Moderna. Uh, became a powerhouse and a major contributor to coronavirus vaccines. But with respect to the rollout, as, as your lead-in uh, indicates, uh, we've got serious concerns. Uh, so I don't think we're going to score an A-plus for our operational uh, rollout uh, uh, of distributing these vaccines. Uh, my impression is Massachusetts is doing relatively well relative to other U.S. states, but we have a very uh, diverse system, different states doing different things and having different uh, ways of getting the vaccines to people. Uh, I'm reading the headlines and news stories just as you are, but I'm also speaking to relatives. Uh, my mother-in-law is in Florida. Uh, she has two physicians, myself and my wife, Sharon, also a physician, uh, advising her, trying to help her find information. And days into it, we still can't get a clear answer as to who she turns to to get immunized. She's in a high-risk group. She's elderly. Uh, That's just one example. Um, So, uh, and of course, you've seen the headlines of people standing online for hours, elderly individuals uh, in Florida and other states waiting to get immunized. That doesn't seem like a particularly good system. So uh, we have a long way to go. As Dr. Fauci pointed out, uh, you know, we're doing something uh, at a rate that has never been done before, and we're trying to roll it out uh, very rapidly. Uh, And the rollout played out during the holiday season between Christmas and New Year's. That's yet another operational challenge. So we have to see now that we're past the holidays. Uh, how this can roll out. Can we speed up? Because if we can't get a sense in the coming week or two that things are speeding up in terms of the rate of immunization of our population, uh, they're going to have to be big changes made in how we're doing this. Yeah. Well, and, you know, this is, and again, there's state levels, local levels, federal, there's all these agencies and, and things involved. I spoke of the pharmaceutical executive who, who would never probably ever go on the record saying this, but they said, you know, if the government would just let us handle it, we, we do this every day. Every single day, the pharmaceutical industry and drug distributors and everybody else distribute life-saving drugs to millions of Americans. 
every single day. The infrastructure and chain is already built. And that was, I think, some of the frustration. It may be some of it, but remember, it's not just getting the vaccines to the biomedical centers. And let's remember, these mRNA vaccines are safe. Uh, they're very uh, effective. That's really important. But they do require special freezer temperatures. That's an operational challenge. It's not just getting the vaccines to the medical centers, but it's getting it into people's arms. Uh, you know, I'm very fortunate uh, as an infectious disease physician at Boston Children's Hospital. The hospital's done a great job distributing the vaccines to the healthcare workers. Uh, I received my second dose of the Pfizer product yesterday. Um, and so uh, so I'm fortunate to be in that category. Uh, but it is a big operational challenge to get the shots, not just in the freezer, but in arms uh, of, of, of individuals. Um, and, you know, I, I can't help but compare to what's happening in Israel. Uh, my two parents uh, live in Israel. Uh, they're both elderly and uh, they've already been vaccinated uh, over a week ago. Uh, and not only were they vaccinated, but a young individual who helps take care of my father uh, was vaccinated on the same day. They didn't even have to get out of their car. Uh, they're part of a health maintenance organization. That's how it's organized there, four large HMOs. They drove to the site uh, on, on, a, on the appointment date and time. Wow. Uh, they rolled down the window and uh, their, their card was scanned, uh, ID, and then they got the shot right in the arm. And then they waited for 20 minutes in the parking lot and make sure there was no reaction and they were on their way. And uh, as you know, uh, Israel is, is soon going to have 15, 20 percent of the population immunized. And higher than that, it's going to go up and up. And, and uh, yeah. well, congratulations to you. By the way, healthcare workers, folks like yourself, they should be the first ones absolutely vaccinated, putting their lives on the line, doing the work we need to get this done. Dr. Oferlevy, thank you very much. Best to your parents as well. My mom also, by the way, elderly and, and still waiting to figure out what's going to go on. All right. Coming up. How investors need to prepare for today's jobs number. The markets are looking ahead to that report, and we'll talk about it with Tom Porcelli next. All right, with us now, Tom Porcelli, Chief U.S. Economist at RBC Capital Markets, joining us by phone. Tom, your expectations from the monthly jobs number today. Hey, Brian. Yeah, so we're looking for uh, an increase of just 100,000. Uh, I, I mean, look. You know, it's interesting. Uh, as we sort of sift through the data, um, it, it certainly could actually be an even stronger number. I, mean, I just think the, the sort of the seasonal factor um, sort of lends itself to being a stronger one. But we're, we're going to lean against it uh, in, a, in a pretty material way, just given, uh, obviously, the resurgent virus, companies uh, scaling back. Uh, so we're, we're looking for 100,000. But, um, uh, you know, look, obviously ADP flagged that it could be negative. In fairness, ADP has not done a great job. Of, uh, of, of highlighting what the, the, the private NFP number is going to do. So 100,000. But again, I, I think the bigger, the bigger point here, Brian, is I, I would lean against any weakness here. I mean, we, we sort of all understand where we're in this rough patch right here. But we think we'll be in a much better place uh, as, as we push ahead into uh, as we get well into 21. Yeah, and I'm looking at your view here on a graphic. It says the view is that you think we'll be back to close to full employment by the middle of the year. I mean, sticking with that. Yeah, I mean, look, it, it's it's not a heroic call to be totally honest. <laughs> we're we're at six point seven percent on the unemployment rate right now. I mean, full employment is around five percent. So we 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 have um, obviously chopped a lot of wood in terms of um, seeing some improvement in the unemployment rate. And I think we have to keep in mind too, we were looking at tight. I mean, this is uh, it might sound odd to say, but we were looking at tight labor markets. Um, just over the course of the last couple of months prior to the resurgence uh, of this virus, uh, you know, sort of in November and December. I mean, that was an idea that came through pretty loud and clear in the Small Business Survey, in the ISM report, uh, in the Fed's Beige Book. So, yeah, I do. I, I think it'll. Uh, I, I think that full employment by the, uh, by, by the middle of the year is uh, a good call. 
I like it. It's a good call to end the show on an optimistic note, especially after this week. So, Tom, we appreciate you doing that for us. Tom Porcelli, good weekend. Thank you very much. And, folks, thank you for watching us here on Worldwide Exchange. I know it's been a long week for a lot of people. We're glad you're with us. We will see you on Monday. Squawk Box is next. Have a peaceful week. You've been listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. You can always catch us live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern only on CNBC. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.